0: Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 permits limited use of copyrighted material for news and educational purposes. This podcast is copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. episode 55 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. We live in remarkable times, so remarkable that people keep saying they thought they would never live to see the things that are going on every day. In fact, they never thought many of the things would even be possible. Well, they are possible because Scripture said they would be possible as we approach the second coming of Jesus Christ. That period is described in the Bible using various terms and phrases, including the birth pangs, the end times, the day of betrayal, the tribulation, the day of wrath, the day of judgment, the time of punishment, end of the age, the time of Jacob's trouble, the last days, and the day of the Lord. Tied up with those phrases are specific prophecies about what those days will be like and the things people will do and think in those days. One of the characteristics of this coming era will be the anointing of a governmental leader who will have authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, according to Revelation 13.7. Some people interpret this to mean there will be a single world government that this man heads. But nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say that there will be a single one world government. Rather, it says, specifically in Revelation 13.7, that there will be a leader who will have authority over the people of the world he will exercise authority over them. Maybe the whole world will be united under a single massive governmental system, but I don't think so for several reasons. First of all, I believe that the first true worldwide government will be established not by man or by angels, but by Jesus Christ. And that's just my opinion. More importantly, this leader that is spoken of in Revelation 13, 7, while exercising authority over other nations, does not entirely control them. For example, in Revelation 19.19, this leader gathers with the kings of the earth and their armies to fight Jesus when he returns. But kings in the Bible refer to rulers of nations, of independent political entities, not of governmental subdivisions. Furthermore, they maintain their own armies, so this ruler who exercises some kind of authority over the nations cannot himself be the ruler of the nations. There are many ways for one nation to exercise authority over other nations. Our government, for example, does it every day through its military power, financial tools, and economic policies. China is increasingly able to do the same thing using a similar set of tools. So it's not difficult to imagine that this ruler in the end times will be in a position to do something similar, either using the same tools or perhaps by using more sophisticated tools. It's also clear from scripture that this ruler will not be based out of the United States. He's going to be based out of the Middle East, which is where the events of the Bible are centered. So between now and then, something big has to change. Right now, America and its allies exercise considerable influence, if not control, over the affairs in the Middle East. If anything, America has authority over the rulers of the Middle East, to whatever extent we want to exert that authority. Certainly, no ruler in the Middle East exercises authority over America. So something has to change. A ruler in the Middle East has to increase in power and influence, and America must decrease in power and influence. Or to put it another way, America cannot be great again. It has to be taken down. Do you perceive events of our day working out the diminishing of America on the world stage? If we still have the status of a great nation on the world stage, it might be because the process of humbling a nation takes time. Many formerly great nations were made humble over years or decades. The process of humbling a nation usually involved military action brought about by another nation that was aspiring to greatness. The Bible is a record book of such great nations that rose, dominated, and fell. Nations such as Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, each one replaced by a more dominant power. But sometimes, a great power was brought low through internal rot and decay that allowed lesser powers to take advantage of the nation during its weakness. The best-known example of the latter process is the gradual decay of the Roman Empire. It slowly withered over a period of centuries until it was finally toppled by an angry Germanic tribe. So, how is America doing in its greatness? Well, let's start with the end. At the return of Christ, America will not be the nation that dominates the world. That nation will emerge out of the Middle East. In fact, there are indications in the Bible that America will be missing from the international stage at that point. The first is definitely true, and the second might be true. But either way, in that day, America will not hold the position it currently holds as the military bully of the world. So between now and then, something has to change here in America to make the government weak and inconsequential. Something has to radically change. But has it? Let's take a look. America is the undisputed military, industrial, and financial powerhouse of the world. It is those three things that give the government its power and influence, speaking from a worldly perspective, of course. American military might comes from the industrial capacity and innovation of corporate America, which itself is dependent on the power of our financial system. Are there any powers in the world who envy and resent America's position and who might be in a position to try and undermine one or all of those strengths? Throughout the 20th century, the declared enemy of America and the West was communist Russia, communism being a political creation that was designed to undermine God and the nation that once stood for God, America. After World War II, communism swept across the world, casting hundreds of millions and then billions of people into subjugation and virtual enslavement under its iron fist. While fantastic at subjecting populations to brutality, terror, and murder, Communism was less successful at creating financial stability, durable goods that worked and didn't fall apart, and a military war machine that could compete with the West. The result was the inevitable collapse of the communist state, with the old Soviet Union leading the way. Communists, for all their philosophical musings, are nothing but run-of-the-mill tyrants who believe the world was created to please them and to fluff their bloated egos. They could not compel their enslaved populations to compete with the West, so the result was inevitable. Their governments fell apart trying. So when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, the government of the next most powerful communist nation switched tactics. China embarked on a plan to ease the brutal hand of its own government just enough to induce an economic revival to compete with the West. Their plan was very simple. Encourage the decadent Western rulers to enact policies that would transfer industrial capacity over to China. In exchange for employing slave-like labor in China, the Western nations would get really cheap stuff. Environmental and worker protection laws were non-existent in China, so the profit margins skyrocketed, producing a nearly instantaneous boon of profitability that was realized just as soon as the new factories could be built. Once that plug was pulled, industrial capacity fled from the West like water down a drain. Of course, once China was filled with new industrial facilities, it didn't take long for the Communist Party to begin extracting resources to pay for its own aspirations, which has never changed. From the moment the Communist Party was born in China, it had as its object the destruction of America and the West and the creation of a new hegemony of nations headed by China. And they have never denied that intention. Once the wealth began to go through China, the money began to flow outward to the politicians. Western politicians are as corrupt as they come, and the secretive three-letter intelligence and defense agencies are even more corrupt than the politicians. They were penetrated early in their existence by communists, and this group of people, who did not support freedom and liberty, were protected by their sycophantic supporters in academia, the media, and the political sphere. China bought themselves American political officials and through them academic, industrial, and military access. At the same time, deep within Western governmental bureaucracies, the old fascist ideologies prospered. The war between fascism and communism never really ended at the end of World War II. The parties just went undercover, disguising themselves as legitimate politicians, with both sides targeting America for subversion and takeover. The fascists work with industry to form a public-private partnership of tyranny, and the communists work with academics and their supporters in government to undermine America and transfer its capabilities to China. Both sides want to use America even as they destroy America. The result of this external communist influence and the internal manipulation of our national priorities by fascists produced an inevitable result. The United States government is now doing everything it can possibly do to destroy itself as a nation. It is infected with a terminal illness, A symptom of which is the fact that our government and its supporters now hate the concept of nation. I'm old school, so definitions are important. We should know what we mean when we use terms of importance. There are two definitions that seem to be common to the word nation. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines nation as a group of people with a common nationality, culture, or territory. National Geographic, on the other hand, gets more pointed as it defines nation as a territory where all the people are led by the same government. What's common to all definitions of the word nation is the concept of territory. All nations have a territory, a land area that the nation defends and protects. Implicit to the definition of nation is the existence of some kind of people group within that territory that is autonomous and distinct from other people groups from other territories. A people group within a land area that is not protected and defended will soon be overrun by people from other groups and other areas who will take over the area, the land area. So borders and defended land areas are important concepts that support stable nations and governments. China understands that concept. It defends every inch of its territory within its defined border, even in remote areas where no one lives. India and China both understand the importance of borders, which is why they've been in a de facto state of war for decades. They have a border dispute that is held in check by an elaborate ceasefire agreement. No one moves across their borders without their government's knowledge and approval, at least if they want to stay out of prison or worse. Yet our own government cheers an open border policy. They would have us think that the borders of Ukraine and Israel are sacrosanct, but the borders of America are disposable. In fiscal year 2021, U.S. Customs and Border Protection recorded 1.7 million encounters with illegal aliens along the southern border. In 2022, that number went up to 2.3 million. In 2023, it went up again to 2.4 million, and in the first four months of 2024, it hit 961,000, which is on pace for almost 3 million encounters. These data are from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection website, and those numbers just refer to the southwestern border. Encounters are contacts with human beings who do not belong here, and after making contact, most of those encounters were released into this country. Once released, the federal government and its cooperative non-governmental organizations put these encounters on buses and onto trains, planes, and automobiles to move them around the country. These immigrants, quote-unquote, are provided plane passes without showing or even having IDs, without passing through standard security checkpoints, and without the normal baggage checks. They are provided free air transportation on government-subsidized aircraft to the destination of their choice, all at taxpayer expense. They are fed, housed, given free health care, and are currently being placed into brand-new condominium complexes that are springing up all over America. And once there, they are bequeathed two years' salary and rent support, a food allowance, a transportation allowance, a communication device allowance, health care, and free legal assistance, all with no strings attached. Now, I bet you, an actual American citizen, can't get a deal like that. Armed gangs and drug cartels south of the border traffic fentanyl, other drugs, and human beings up to the border, stealing from their encounters all along the way, abusing them and repeatedly raping the female and child encounters as they take them across multiple borders to reach our border. After arriving at our border, at one time, they used to have to search for a weak point in the barriers that Donald Trump erected. But most of those barriers have been removed by the Biden administration and replaced with hinged door gates that allow the encounters to pass through more easily. Once they're on this side of the border, The criminal cartel gang members instruct them to go to church and government traffickers, who then transport them to local traffickers in cities and communities across the nation, who then continue the abuse of the people until they reach their final destinations. For many women and children, that journey ends with an unpleasant gang-rape entry into sex slavery. The unlucky ones will have their life expectancy dramatically shortened as they are forced to donate their own organs or will be subject to a slightly longer life of terrorized brutality as they are placed into adrenochrome production facilities to make the potions of beauty for the elite in Washington and Hollywood. Anne VanderSteel recently conducted a journalistic investigation along the southern border, and she related some of what she encountered in an interview with Sarah Westall.
1: My journey on the border you know, started several years ago. Uh, when I was working down there with Tim Foley of the Arizona uh, border recon, just getting to know him. And then of course doing the people's convoy. And I went back, I kept going back to Arizona because we were watching the wall go up, but we were also watching all the drug cartels mule in their drugs. Um, We had uh, trail cams all over the place. Thanks to Tim's hard work. He's been out there a lone man, big kudos to him because he really has been that lone wolf out there defending our border in Arizona with really no support at all. And uh, you know, The today's overwhelming response to what's happening at the border is, I'm sure, a refreshing um, change for him, and he's happy to see it. But it's sort of like, where have we been? Where has the Americans been? Why were we not paying closer attention? Why were we derelict on our duties, standing on our Constitution and performing our civic duty to govern? We have been derelict. And so— Michael Yan, who's a very famous Green Beret war correspondent, reached out to me. We met uh, during J6 and stayed in contact. He reached out to me and said, "Ann, I'm wanting to do a border trip and you're the first person I'm calling, would you go with me this past summer? So we went to Texas border starting down at uh, Brownsville, where actually where SpaceX is, and uh, and Boca Chica, and we were working our way west to California when in McAllen, Texas, a couple of things were massive red flags. One, we ran into a DHS whistleblower that opened up our eyes to just how huge the human trafficking component of this yeah. is specifically for children, and we'd heard about this, right? We've heard about it for years, but We now got an up close personal uh, look into the into the world of human trafficking and as aided and comforted and funded by our United States government through national or should we say non-governmental organizations. And just how big that is with all of these monster facilities. And we went to see some of these huge warehouses that have 5000 kids, 2000 kids, what have you under roof. Is it just kids? the ones that we went to were just children, and we also received a list of a three-month snapshot out of just one warehouse in California that had eighty-six hundred kids that had been removed out of that warehouse and dispersed around the country, and the addresses were everywhere in every state, and some of these addresses had uh, you know a hundred children registered there, which is insane, it's insane. That's not. And I've even heard that.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that people have gone to those addresses and find just fields and things. It's not even real.
1: They're not exactly. It's banks. It's uh, post office boxes. It's crazy. It's just the most insane thing. They're not even real addresses, but sometimes there are real addresses. And when you get to these addresses, like some of the ones in Austin, Texas, we saw, you saw Los Cholos, which is gangs for the children. And you saw literally kids all over the place hanging out with tats on and getting their head shaved and they had the gang symbols tattooed on of MS-13 or whatever. And it was literally these kids have been imported to be gang members so were they ever even children to begin with that's a question so this whole human trafficking effort has been about not only trafficking children for child sex trafficking and women for you know sex trafficking and forced labor but also importing the trojan army so the story developed in texas uh from there we made a lot of headways we were able to get some meetings with say senator bob hall from the texas state legislature we had an uh, emissary go and meet with the um Attorney General Ken Paxton, who at that time was actually going through the impeachment inquisition in Texas. Uh, But because we had discovered a massive 60 square mile development, specifically being marketed to illegal aliens in Latin America, Central and South America, with Instagram and TikToks and all this stuff, marketing, you can own a piece of property in Texas and have the American dream. Um, We we flew over this property and took members of Congress, uh, sheriffs, et cetera, and other journalists. Right. Yeah. It because was massive. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. Colony rich. Huge. And uh, we exposed it. And so these are the types of things that we were able to do with Operation Burning Edge while we were down on the border. Bring public attention, massive media attention to the illegal alien developments, to the crisis at the border, to the non not uh, NGOs, to the funding of the United States government, to the clear treasonous acts of Majorca, secretary of, uh, you know, of the um, Department of Homeland Security. And uh, of course, Biden. And uh, and anybody else that's not standing on the Constitution, like Greg Abbott, who should have been screaming for Article 4, Section 4 more loudly, but then he could have stood on Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which means the states can defend their borders and deport anybody that shouldn't be there. So for three years, Abbott didn't do that. He just bust these people to more deeply into our country, which really frankly, Sarah, is more compliant with the World Economic Forum's doctrine for mass migration, uh, which they act as the unofficial State Department, frankly, for the United Nations. And you saw their doctrine really developed by Joe Biden and President Obador of Mexico and, and the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, when they signed the DNA, the Declaration of North America on January 10th,
0: 2023. I have to stop here to digest the information she's provided in addition to the well-documented destinations to nowhere many of the encounters are sent to, Anne uncovered enormous facilities that house, sort, and distribute illegal encounters, and a massive government housing development to give some illegal encounters free land and homes, courtesy of our government. Were you able to get one of those? No, of course you weren't. But the bombshell disclosure at the very end of this clip was her reference to the Declaration of North America signed at the end of last year. Do you know what that is? Have you even heard of it? It's a declaration that essentially ends American sovereignty as a national entity. It does this by providing open access to our land area for unlimited numbers of people who might want to come in and experience America. It also transfers to the World Health Organization control over the American military should six magic words be uttered by the director of the WHO. Those words being public health emergency of international concern. When those six words are uttered, the director of the WHO gains operational control over the U.S. military and other militaries around the world. When we transfer the operational control of our military to a third world dictator, or even make a provision that we will do so under some circumstances, we have lost our sovereignty. This act is not a treaty but a declaration, an act of executive authority that does not have to be ratified by the Senate because the Congress already gave the President the authority to negotiate this document without any congressional oversight or approval. Lest we think that this is just a theoretical loss of sovereignty because the director of the WHO has not yet uttered those six magic words, we should be reminded that there is an actual loss of sovereignty occurring at the southern border whenever millions of encounters pour across it. So who are all these people pouring across the southern border?
1: We you know that terrorists came in. My goodness, just on the three trips I've done to Panama, I've seen the individuals coming in of military fighting military age males, and it's ten men to every one woman down there. Um, and these people are coming from state sponsors of terror, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. These are not here. These are not people here for a better way of life. Okay. So
0: it's really so, obvious when you're down there that it's military
1: oh, age men. It's just so clear. So when skeptics like uh, Dr. Chris Martinson and uh, Brian Weinstein come down, Brian Weinstein come down and they, uh, you know, were on the other side. They were, say, on the less MAGA, more uh, liberal, um, classical liberal side, have moved to center and they come down and they see what's happening the border and it becomes extremely clear in their minds what's happening. I'd say absolutely. Uh, You can you can attest that these are fighting age men and this is the Trojan Army being sucked into our country and they're going to wait. They're going to wait. So Abbott, yes, he's a psyop. Yes, he could have shut it down. He should have been the first person standing on his state's rights under the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution.
0: Many of these men are herded into secretive government vehicles under heavy security and whisked to equally secretive bases run by Homeland Security on military installations in the Southwest. Where they go from there is anyone's guess. A nation, if it exists in any meaningful form, does not allow itself to be invaded by millions of military-age men from hostile foreign countries, and its leaders certainly don't encourage it. So what's going on down there? Gordon Chang knows what's going on. He is a distinguished senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute, and he served two terms as a trustee of Cornell University. He has written about China in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Far Eastern Economic Review, and numerous other publications. He lived and worked in China for two decades and has briefed the United States National Intelligence Council, the CIA, the State Department, and the Pentagon on things related to China. This is what he wrote on February 13th of this year. The Chinese Communist Party is at this moment putting in place the infrastructure in America to attack America. Chinese attackers are already in America. More are arriving by the day, and they are armed. Video posted to X, formerly Twitter, show Chinese migrants firing pistols. One video is of a Chinese female with a sniper rifle. There is no Second Amendment in China and Chinese citizens are not allowed to possess firearms. One of the migrants videoed was in America for only three weeks and arrived in the country with no money and no identification. And this is my comment. And he was practicing using firearms. Where did he get those things? I can't even get a firearm in three weeks. Back to the story. Blaine Holt, is a retired Air Force general living in Idaho. He said, quote, Tens of thousands of military-age men have come across our border and are now in America, organized by group and nationality. Among them are terrorists and state actors, in particular, members of the People's Liberation Army of China. As we speak, these actors are training, making plans, and obtaining weapons, watching our patterns, and learning our vulnerabilities, end quote. Continue the article. In Reedley, California, near Fresno, authorities found a secret Chinese biological weapons lab with at least 20 pathogens, including one for Ebola and almost a thousand mice that had been genetically engineered to spread disease. There are no benign explanations for such a facility. Moreover, it's unlikely that the Chinese regime has only one such lab in America. And that's the end of the article, Apart, part that I'm going to read anyway. Well, I guess fair is Fair. After our own CIA and DOD planted bioweapons labs all over the rest of the world, the China started to plant some here. Well, these people love their biowarfare. In another article dated August 3rd, 2023, Chang wrote, General Qi hoi when he was China's defense minister two decades ago, reportedly gave a secret speech advocating the extermination by disease of all Americans. His plan was to clear out the hills, plains, and valleys in North America so that the Chinese people could settle in the vast spaces left uninhabited. Well, there is a, this is me, this is not the article, end of that article, there is a theory circulating around China based on genetic information that America was originally inhabited by nomadic Asian tribes of Chinese descent. They became the Native American Indians. Consequently, according to this theory, America really belongs to China.
1: And I've actually interviewed certain generals over the years, uh, specifically when COVID first came out and we were discussing what it is. And I said, I think it's a bioweapon. I said, I don't have evidence yet, but my gut says this is a bioweapon. I've had generals tell me that The Chinese have looked on satellite feeds of every single home in North America, and they have earmarked every house for one of their own back in China. So they do believe that uh, and it's even discussed in a Chinese speech uh, given by a general a long time ago. I think it was in 2003 or five. I have to go pull it up. I can't remember his name because I don't speak Chinese. But he was very serious about the DNA belonging to the Chinese, ergo North America. America, the United States, should be Chinese territory. And they believe this. So, this is what we're up against. This is their
0: ideology. Not that any good communist needs such convoluted reasoning to invade someone's territory, but it just feeds into their sense of entitlement to eliminate the competition from the land. A functional sovereign nation does not fund its own invaders, collect them into secret locations where the government does something with them that the citizens are not allowed to see and then provides them transportation to somewhere in the country along an underground railroad-style secretive distribution system. The Epoch Times wrote an article in February that explains how it is that so many people from around the world can afford the tens of thousands of dollars to get to America and then cross the border penniless. Quote, The United States, it wrote, is bankrolling its own invasion by funding the United Nations and its partners, which in turn give hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and aid to migrants who eventually cross the U.S. southwestern border. More than $1 billion from the U.S. government was sent to the U.N. and other agencies to fund migrants, according to a government spending database. The U.N. is pouring a staggering amount of money into the illegal immigration crisis. The Regional Refugee and Migrant Response Plan for 2024 called for distributing $1.6 billion in 17 countries with the help of 248 partner agencies. The plan allocated $372 million in cash and vouchers and multipurpose cash assistance during 2024 for 624,300 migrants, the population of Detroit. End of article. Does a sovereign nation allow a supposed venue for nations to communicate, to dictate its immigration policies? Does it allow foreign governments and non-governmental organizations to conspire to undermine its border security? Do leaders of such a nation, regardless of what they say, really support that nation, or are they actively working to destroy it? The same thing is going on in Europe, by the way. A new EU pact on migration and asylum that was approved on Wednesday is expected to flood Europe with 75 million new migrants. Marie Le Pen, the leader of the National Rally Party Parliamentary Wing, said it was an organized plan of subversion that will lead to the suicide of Europe. As bad as we have it, at least the Central and South Americans are nominally Christian. The 75 million migrants into Europe are mostly or entirely Muslim, and the Muslims have not forgotten their plans for world domination. A nation, if it exists, does not bankrupt itself by promising debts it can't pay and printing currency like its wallpaper, even while sending the paper wealth to other nations to fund wars, or to enrich supporters, or sometimes just to squirrel it away in a secret Swiss bank account for a personal rainy day. A nation, if it really exists, does not encourage the destruction of the lifeblood of the nation, whatever that thing that allows it to exist is. In America. That thing is oil, natural gas and coal, and to a lesser extent, nuclear power, and anything else that actually supplies the energy we need to run our commerce and industry, heat our buildings in winter, cool them in summer, and fuel our transportation system. No number of windmills or solar panels can replace these primary energy sources. To the extent that we regulate primary energy out of existence, which is the purpose of the net-zero objectives of the United Nations, the WEF, and the American government, we will perish as a nation. A nation that is serious about its existence does not write laws and regulations that diminish the quantity of food it produces, degrades its quality and poisons the very substance of the food through genetic manipulation. Have you been paying any attention to the massive farmer protests that are inflaming Europe? Farmers are blockading cities, shutting down highways and coating government properties with liquid manure, all because the EU is passing legislation that is, essentially, making it impossible for farmers to stay in business government agents of a nation don't go running around killing hundreds of millions of chickens over a supposed virus that has harmed exactly zero human beings. Our national defense leaders are no longer serious about keeping America in existence, much less great in any form, but they are serious about supplying the kind of entertainments that will keep the people dumb, blind, and deaf until it is much too late to do anything about it. America is dying, and I would guess a sizable portion of its population is soon going to die right along with it. But too few people will notice the approaching disaster until death is at the door, mostly because of one small verse in the Bible. Its address is 2 Thessalonians 2.11, and it says, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And what lie is God talking about? Well, theologians have been debating that question for centuries, but the reality is it doesn't really matter what the lie is. A lie is an untruth. It is a falsehood that does not really exist. What this verse says is that God will make sure there is a delusion or delusions that will keep a large portion of the population unable to understand and interpret reality correctly. They will believe things that are patently untrue, and they will really, really believe them. They will believe the lies so much that people who do not believe them will become their enemies. Nothing more than people to be silenced, then confined, and finally destroyed. And why will they be deluded into believing things that are patently untrue? Verse 10, because of unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Unrighteous deception opposes truth as revealed by God by making the deception more appealing than the truth of God. It caters to our sinful side, the rebellious part of us who wants to do things our way, in our style, at our discretion. The problem with delusions is that they are incompatible with sustained life because people who are deluded can't properly interpret or interact with reality. They need some artificial means to stay alive. Most of my listeners will agree that it is delusional for a person to think they're a cat. Being a cat is one of many dozens of gender identities. This particular delusion causes people to dress as cats and act as cats to the extent that their very uncat like body allows them to act as a cat. And they even find a way to use a litter box. It doesn't seem strange to them, apparently, that they know what a litter box is, that it is found in a store, that cat litter goes into it, that they have the physical body structure and mental faculty to find, buy, transport, and fill a litter box so that they can then squat and use it. Cat-gendered people persist in their delusional state of mind only because others go along with it and accept the lie themselves. The success of a delusion requires others to accept and tolerate lies. This is why people who covet or champion delusions violently and angrily oppose anyone who deny the delusions they are coveting or championing, or worse, if someone actually tries to contest it. While behaving like a cat is one kind of a delusion, it's also delusional to think that a nation can keep printing money endlessly without destroying itself. There are countless excellent historic examples of how the profligate and unrestrained printing of money by governments that are run by greedy and power-hungry tyrants destroyed their economies and brought those nations to their knees. Yet that's what America is doing. It's also delusional to think we can legalize crime without any consequence, yet that's what we do when our mayors and law enforcement officials decide they will not prosecute any property crime valued at under $1,000 no matter how brazen the thieves or prosecute people because they possess a certain color of skin or have a certain ethnic background, as is being done in major cities across America. It's delusional for lawmakers to believe that growing crops and raising farm animals somehow degrades the climate and threatens the existence of the earth. Yet, they continue to try to restrict and even outlaw farming in Western countries, all in the name of stopping climate change to save the earth. These are just a few of the many delusions that are harmful. But do they rise to the status of a great delusion? What makes a delusion great in the eyes of God? As with almost everything in the Bible, the answer lies in the degree to which the delusion conflicts with the will and designs of God. The Bible is one long record of how man's will continuously and relentlessly conflicts with God's, but the ultimate expression of that conflict does not occur until the period of history known as the end times. That period will birth the ultimate expression of man's contempt for God and his creation, which is the great delusion that Paul referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2. It was specifically referenced in Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, the average person who reads this passage may have no idea what God is talking about, so their imagination could run wild with the possibilities. Theologians commonly attribute this passage to some kind of general resistance of people and their leaders to God, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It is not referring to a general time period, or a general group of people, or a general attitude of defiance, but to a specific time period and a specific group of people with a very specific attitude of defiance. It is an end-time prophecy, and it gives both the motivation for the rise of Antichrist and his popularity, and in the context of delusion, it is the object of the end-time's great delusion. When studying scripture, context is very important. A text without a context is nothing but a pretext. So the context is some major end times event involving people, nations, and their leaders. The English, we're going to break this down now to see how this works. The English word translated nations is the Hebrew word goy, meaning nation of people or group of people, and it usually refers to non-Hebrew people, otherwise known as heathens. In other words, it's a word that the Hebrews often use to describe the Gentile people who oppose the living God Yahweh. The word translated people is the Hebrew word leom, which is from a root word meaning to gather, specifically to gather a community, a nation, or a people. So the idea is that the Gentile people groups who oppose the true God Yahweh are gathering for something. And what are they gathering for? It says to rage and to plot vain things. The word translated rage is the Hebrew word ragash, which means to be in a tumult or commotion or to conspire and plot. The word translated plot is the Hebrew word hagah, which means to moan, growl, muse, meditate, devise, plot, growl, roar, and imagine. I think I said growl twice. So the idea is that the people of the world are in a tumult, growling and roaring and imagining and devising and plotting to do something that has nothing to do with the true God, Yahweh. But what are they so exercised about? And what are they plotting to do? The English phrase, vain thing, is the Hebrew word reek, which means of no purpose, empty, or worthless. So the people of the world are upset and causing a commotion to plot and scheme something that has no real value or purpose because it's empty and worthless. And that's just verse 1. The people who are not God's people are very upset, not necessarily at God, but certainly at something. The response from the leaders of the goy, of the heathen people, comes in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So just who are these kings and rulers the text is describing? The word kings is the Hebrew word milak, which means literally royal personage or king. In our current era, that would be describing the political leaders, presidents, prime ministers, and in some actual cases, kings. In other words, the leaders of nations. And what does this group of national leaders do? It says they set themselves. That is the Hebrew word yetzab, which means to stand, stand fast, stand up, withstand, or take a stand. The world leaders will take a determined stand on some issue of great importance and will unite in a firm conviction that will not waver. So the world leaders will agree about something. The other group described in this verse is translated as rulers. It comes from the Hebrew word rozan, which means prince or ruler. This would be the next level down in governmental authority, and in the modern context would represent ministers, congresspeople, and even cabinet officials. So the law enforcers, the lawmakers, and the policymakers respond to all the civil unrest by taking counsel together. That is the Hebrew word yasad, which means to fix, lay a foundation, lay or begin. So the law enforcers, lawmakers, and policymakers create and fix new laws and rules for something in response to the firm determination of the nation's top leaders. And those laws and rules have an object, a purpose behind them, which is to be against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the part of the psalm that clearly shows that it is prophetic, specifically of the end times. Unlike the psalmist who knew only the general description of the person, today we know which actual person this verse refers to. The word Lord, all in caps, is a substitute word placed in the Bible whenever the proper name Yahweh or Jehovah is written, which is God's name. It was done to show fear and respect for the great name of God. However, God's anointed, who is the Messiah, didn't arrive for hundreds of years after the psalm was written. Today, we know who that is. We know his name is Jesus Christ. So the leaders of the world and the rulers of the world and maybe even the people of the world have taken a stand and are plotting and scheming to do something that is against both God and Jesus. Well, that couldn't have happened until at least 2,000 years ago because Jesus wasn't around until then. And for all practical purposes, most of the world didn't have any idea who Yahweh and his anointed were until relatively recently. Moreover, world leaders of government did not meet in any meaningful way as a group until very, very recently. In fact, the first substantive meeting of world leaders in a forum that utilized, in some way, their diverse authorities, was the founding meeting of the United Nations in 1947. It is the only venue in all of history in which the leaders of the world's nations can meet at a single location, and it is the only venue that has ever been given enough authority for the world's nations to plot and plan things that could affect both God and his anointed. But what specifically does the psalm say that these leaders are plotting and planning against God and Jesus? Verse 3, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is the only clue we were given as to the vain thing that these governments are plotting and planning, so it's important that we break it down. The English word translated bonds or bands is the Hebrew word moser, which means just that, bonds or bands. It symbolizes a physical system of restraint. The etymology of the word comes from the root word asar, which means to bind, tie, or imprison. So the leaders of the world want to break some restraints, something that is keeping them from getting to something they want, or keeping them where they do not want to be. Okay, but what about that word cord? That is the Hebrew word aboth, which means cord, rope, or chain, something that ties one thing to another. The rulers of the world want to break free of something that ties them to something they don't like, and they are plotting and scheming how to do it. So what could that something be, and what are they tied to? The answer to that was given in part by Jesus Christ himself, who is one of the two people they are opposing in their plotting. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37, and in Luke 17, 26, As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. In a recent podcast, we saw that the fallen angels bred with human women and animals to produce the hybrid creatures known as Nephilim, a very violent and powerful group of artificially produced life forms. All hybrid life is created by altering or modifying the instructional code of life, which we know today as DNA. Obviously, Noah knew nothing about DNA, and they didn't know anything about it in Jesus' day. But the general concept Jesus relayed in that short sentence is that some kind of genetic manipulation of DNA will occur in the end times, just like it did in Noah's day. And we know what consequence that DNA manipulation brought to the world. It brought destruction through a flood that affected, one way or another, most life forms on the earth. A flood was a sufficient tool of destruction because the offending life forms were all biological, air-breathing entities, so drowning worked just fine. That was then, but in the end times, we're looking at the far future relative to that time. God, who sees the end from the beginning, said through that simple statement of Jesus Christ that humans will be genetically manipulated in the end time tribulation period, just like they were in the days of Noah, and that manipulation will convert human beings into hybrid humans but it won't stop there. If it is allowed to proceed, it will go one step further than the days of Noah by producing biosynthetic humans and then fully synthetic humans. This is the dream of the globalists and their mouthpieces at the World Economic Forum. When Klaus Schwab talks about the fourth industrial revolution, that's what he's talking about. When Yuval Noah Harari talks about biodigital convergence and the age of data, that's what he's talking about. According to Psalm 2, the world leaders and their law and rule-making subordinates are going to plot and scheme together to break free of this physical body of death, as the Apostle Paul put it, said body having been created by God and therefore being under the authority of God and His anointed Jesus Christ. They want to break free of these bodies of death in order to live forever another way, their way, and the person who is going to usher in this grand new vision will be the Antichrist. That is the great delusion. People will go along with this delusion because the leaders of the world will deploy technologies that will make people so sick that they will, in their delusional state, grasp at any hope of salvation from their physical woes by the doctors and technologists who will promise to give them health, wealth, and eternal longevity for something. Because nothing is free. Maybe they will choose to believe the lie just so they do not have to face the fearful reality that their own doctors, technologists, pharmaceutical industries, and governments conspired and manipulated their environment just to make them sick, which itself was a tool to induce them to accept the lie of transhumanism. The government, doctors, and technologists will probably blame people's ill health on evolving microbes that are just mutating out of control. They'll create massive fear and panic before offering the masses their solution. The people of the world will be shown promising examples of the program, which will get them excited about it, and they'll clamor for the benefits of synthetic biodigital convergence. When they see and experience firsthand the transhuman hybrids and partially synthetic humanoids that will display unsurpassed physical abilities and compare their vigor with their own ill health, both physically and mentally, they'll desperately want what the display humanoids have so that they can make their own lives more pleasant. In fact, they're very likely to demand it in a commotion. This big lie, the great delusion that we can live eternally another way apart from God as a product of human ingenuity, which is not dependent on the Creator, will be irresistible to many people.
2: Digital technologies and biological systems are beginning to combine and merge in ways that could be profoundly disruptive to our assumptions about society, the economy, and our bodies. We call this the biodigital convergence. Over the past 40 years, the economy has transformed through digital evolutions in information technology like the internet, smartphone, applications and big data analytics. The biodigital convergence could change the way we design and manufacture goods, revolutionize healthcare and agriculture, modify our environment, and even alter how humans evolve as a species. Today, many innovations are driving the changes, but what are the key things we should be looking out for? What new biodigital capabilities could completely alter the world?
3: I think that within, say, 200 years, uh, to give a, a conservative estimate, there won't be Homo sapiens on, on planet Earth. 200 years? 200 years. And I think this is a conservative estimate. Wow. Uh, I, maybe even 100 years. It's not that we'll destroy ourselves in some calamity. Much more likely, we will use advanced technology biotechnology, nanotechnology, direct brain-computer interfaces to upgrade homo sapiens into different kinds of beings. Beings which are different from us much more than we are different from Neanderthals. Beings which will have different bodies, different minds, different brains, I mean, the big products of the coming century will not be shoes or clothes or cars or weapons. The big products of the 21st century are going to be bodies and minds. So I think we are heading towards the upgrading of Homo sapiens into gods. We'll replace natural selection by intelligent design. You have, especially in the U.S., this big argument between natural selection and intelligent design. And the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, that the people who believe in natural selection, I think they're obviously right about the past. But the people who believe in intelligent design, they are right about the future. Mm -hmm. The future of life belongs to intelligent design, but the designers... The intelligent designers will not be some gods above the clouds. We are going to be the intelligent designers of the future of life in the universe.
0: They will believe it with all their deluded little hearts, but the truth they will not want to believe is that Jesus literally will come back to reset the world by destroying all the hybrid and non-biological life forms that will infest it at that time. But the analogy with Noah goes only so far. This time, there will not be a flood. The reason God will not destroy with water a second time is because water may not be enough to destroy the hybrid human beings. Remember in Revelation 9-6, God said something very strange that must have been incomprehensible throughout most of human history. He said, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So how is it that men can seek death yet be unable to die? It's through the transhuman biosynthetic hybridization of human beings with machines. All will not go well for those who participate in this program, but by the time they figure it out, they will be trapped in their new bodies and committed. So it would appear that water will not be sufficient to destroy this new crop of Nephilim, which is probably why in Genesis 9 11, God said to Noah, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So destruction by flood is not in the future, but destruction of these new Nephilim is in the future at the hand of Jesus Christ. And this time it will come by fire. The Old Testament prophets testified to this day of destruction by fire. Prophets such as Malachi in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There is no mistaking the clear reference to fire in that verse in Exodus 32. Moses met Jesus in a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. When the angel of God, Jesus, appeared, it was in the he was in the form of fire that was within but did not burn a bush. That image symbolizes the fire that is to come, a fire that will consume the enemies of Christ, but not his returning army of Christians in our perfected bodies. This section of Exodus 32 reads, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. It is an image of the end-time events when Christ fights to free the earth from Satan and his armies. There will be fire in those days that will utterly destroy the people of the lie but will not hurt or harm the people of Christ. In Zephaniah 3:8, the Lord talked about a fire as a reflection of his anger and indignation. It reads, "Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger." For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now, this passage is often taken figuratively, but it doesn't have to be figurative. Given all the other passages that speak about fire in the end times, I think it can also be taken quite literally. Joel 2.30 is even more explicit. It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Even in the New Testament, Jesus told his disciples what his ultimate task was going to be. In Luke 12, 49, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And in Luke 17, 28 to 30, Jesus compared what will take place upon his return to a familiar story in the Old Testament. He said, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, this is a passage about fire and burning and total destruction. And finally, as we saw in episode 53, there is no better end times account than Joel 2, because it explains a lot about our role as Christians when Jesus returns to the earth. Christians will form an army of Jesus Christ, and in their new bodies, these Christians will be given the assignment to level the armies of Antichrist with, wait for it, fire. Joel 2 verse 3 speaks to this directly. It reads, A fire devours before them, the Christian army, and behind them a flame burns. So it is fire that rules the day of God's wrath. It has to be a kind of fire because biosynthetic bodies will not be constructed entirely of flesh. Verse 6 describes the pain the enemies of Christ will feel as Jesus takes back the earth from them through deployment of fire. It says before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. In that day, the fire is coming. But before it gets here, there is a lot of evil for the enemies of Christ to have to construct and deceptions for them to lay. Over here on this side of the great pond, the next item of business seems to be the chaos of Revelation 6, 4, where it says, Another horse, Fiery Red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Will that sword be wielded by sleeper agents of the PLA of China, who have been infiltrating America by the tens of thousands the past few years? Will it be used by Islamic terrorists who have been walking across the border, some of whom were caught with weapons of mass destruction? Will the sword be swung by the heavily armed drug cartels who somehow keep obtaining weapons that were sent over to help Ukraine fight Russia? Or maybe we will succumb to some mystery illness that just pops up one day in communities across the nation, courtesy of some lab rats or exotic technology? Well, the answer to these questions is yes. And when it happens, there will not be any time for us to prepare. The only preparation we have is the preparation we make in times of peace and tranquility before the chaos begins. Once the chaos starts, there won't be time to figure it out, and our government most certainly is not going to come to save us. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. The wise servant of Christ will be prepared for any eventuality to the point that he or she will be able to help those who are less prepared by giving them food they need, both physical and spiritual, despite whatever chaos has been unleashed around us right up to when Jesus arrives back on the earth. We're not supposed to sit around and wait for him to come back. We are supposed to prepare and train to help ourselves and others survive until he comes back. Jesus wants doers, not spectators. How long will we have to hold out? Well, that's anyone's guess. The only thing we know for sure about Jesus' return is that we won't know anything at all about it because Jesus also said in Matthew 24, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, that is a very interesting statement. The master of the house is Satan because in this passage, Jesus is the thief. He is coming to steal his loyalist church from the empire of Satan and his Antichrist. But Jesus seems to be saying that if Satan knows exactly when he is going to arrive, then Satan will be able to stop Jesus from coming on his rescue mission. And that is a fascinating concept. It can only be true if God and Satan are following an undisclosed rule book that enables Satan to do things that he could only do if God allows them to happen. God is a rule maker and therefore a rule follower. So if there are undisclosed rules to the war between he and Satan, then God is compelled to follow them by his nature. Perhaps that's why Satan continues to fight so hard. He may perceive some theoretical way of defeating God based on whatever those rules say. But no matter what rules God has with Satan, the command of the church is clear. Therefore, you also be ready, said Jesus, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If Satan can't figure out when Jesus is coming, then neither can we. But why does Jesus bring that up in the first place? because we're going to be fighting like mad to survive when he arrives. We will be so desperate, hungry, and fatigued in our fight for survival that we won't have the mental capacity to wait for Jesus to come flying by. We won't expect him because we'll be so preoccupied with figuring out how to survive and how to help others survive. And that's why Jesus told us he will come when we least expect it. We probably will have given up on him by that point. The great promise of Revelation 3, verses 7-11, however, is that Jesus is going to rapture the faithful church that survives up to that point. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. That opening and shutting would be a door, the door to the marriage feast of the Lord. It is what the parable of the ten virgins is about in Matthew 25. Some were ready and led into the marriage feast, and some were not ready and were left behind, and the door was shut. It is a dreadful warning to the church of that day. But Revelation 3 verse 8 repeats the promise of rescue in that day. It says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. This is spoken to the saints who have persevered through all the trouble that's coming, have managed to find a way to survive, and are probably desperate and hard-pressed by Satan's forces of evil who are bent on finding and destroying them. And where is all this tribulation coming from? Is it God's wrath? No. Jesus tells us where all this trouble is ultimately coming from in verse 9. It says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So the trouble originates with this mysterious group of people who worship Satan and call themselves Jews, but are not. They're liars. And we know they are liars because we know who this group is. It is a group of men and women who essentially control the entire world. Originally, they came from the Caucasus region of Asia, but they were kicked out by Russia and they changed their identity when that happened. Today, we know them as Ashkenazi Jews. They say they are Jews, but they are not ethnic Jews at all, and they are not truly converted Jews. They are pagan Satanists who masquerade as Jews. But Jesus, who knew all about this dangerous group of people well before it existed, also watches out for his faithful church. Verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now notice what Jesus just said. He said he will keep them from the hour of trial, not from the hour of tribulation. In this life, he said, you will have tribulation. Why? Because Satan brings it. God tests, but Satan tempts. Both testing and temptation can result in tribulation. The message for Christians is to hope for peace and stability, but plan for chaos and tribulation. The better prepared we are, both scripturally and physically, the more likely we will be to make it through a difficult period and make it to the rapture. But whether it's us who experience the rapture or a future generation, the job in every generation is to prepare like it could be us or even will be us. And if it isn't us, well, good for us. The tribulation is coming, but in the meantime, we know what the government is doing and how it is doing it. The government works for Satan. We work for Jesus Christ. So, how are we doing with our job? If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeartPlayer, FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. O Lord God, full of mercy and grace, whose Son died for our sins and weaknesses for your name's sake, please send your Spirit to strengthen us in wisdom and to help us to understand that we need to prepare for disaster and not cruise through life like a Disney ship floating around the Caribbean. You call us to spread the Gospel, and we do that a little bit. You call us to train up saints in the Word of God, and we do that a little bit better than evangelism. But you also call us to prepare for the difficult times ahead. Do we do this at all? Or do we just expect someone else to prepare for us? Especially the government. Place it into the minds of your loyal servants that the government is not your friend. The government is not the answer to our problems. It is the actual root of our problems. Any government but Christ's is a false government of false promises and false motivations. We may be subject to the governing authorities, just as Jesus was subject to them, but we should understand who and what they are. Each one of them is a tool of Satan and an enemy of God. We only have you and each other to help us survive these difficult coming times. Raise up those who will do this work of preparation for the approaching end times ahead. Bring us together in that preparation for the glory of Christ and in obedience to his word, amen.